Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Happy Friday, gents. All right, happy Friday. What Cheers. a day we have. Cheers. Cheers. Were we all out last night together? We're all drinking water? Or is that a gin tonic, Mike? <laughs> I, too, am... Uh, yes, I, I was uh, partaking up? in a bit of drink. And thus, <laughs> I'm taking a day off to uh, recover, if you will. Good but man. hopefully so be as sharp as We are at our sharpest today. Yes, yes. Remember God the time when out. we could recover in like a matter of hours? And now it's like a, that recovery yeah. time is measured in... Yeah, days totally. and sometimes weeks yeah yes <clears throat> yes i'm familiar with that yeah i well, got i got um, visitors here and they want to go out for a night of dancing and I, I woke up this morning and i said to my wife do i actually have to go out two nights in a row is this how you're going to torture me today do i have to drink alcohol it's uh it's a tough life man I remember the days see? where it was you knew where you were going tuesday thursday friday saturday barely yep. oh my god anyway well, anyway. before we get started, let's give everybody the uh, the typical uh, disclaimer that we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation covering lots of stuff, and um, it's not investment advice. It's uh, maybe educational and an opportunity to learn, and and uh, thus not investment advice. So even, even three guys on a Friday afternoon who are all sipping soda water, uh, you, <laughs> if you want to get investment advice, uh, get it somewhere else, I guess, and... Um, with that, I, I think we're going to talk about inflation. And, uh, you know, one of the things I noticed, one of the inflation memes that was really interesting from the uh, Super Bowl was uh, 50 Cent in, in his inflation that he's incurred over the last uh, couple of decades. 
going. I saw that deep. fifty cent oh to two dollar to buck fifty. <laughs> yeah, buck fifty. <laughs> uh, I do love, I do love that. And then the ensuing, uh, the ensuing um, hubbub about you know who who do those rap singers belong to? The millennial generation or the Gen X? Uh, group, it was, was it was fascinating. I was I was at a Super Bowl party that, that spanned the ages. Mm-hmm. And you could just see the the boomers were like, that was the worst Super Bowl halftime show I've ever seen in my entire life. As like guys my age were tweeting out like that was the greatest best, Super best Bowl ever. party ever, ever, <laughs> hands down, amazing. And yeah. we we're just all making fun of each other because it was just pure honesty, right? Like if yeah. you didn't live it, you weren't going to like Well, it. it was pretty cheeky actually for the Super Bowl organizers to skip right over Gen X last year. You know, it was like yeah. 30 years of boomer-oriented uh, halftime shows. They skipped right over to the millennials last year with the weekend, and then I guess yeah. they remembered that Gen X. Well, this is, is this too. is the thing, right? This is the this is the tension because the, the the Gen X. I mean, clearly, all of those singers are born in the Gen X era, that 19 sort of 65 mm-hmm. to 1980 era. And the millennials also claiming them as as that's our generation's music, and the Gen Xers are like, "Here we go again." We yeah, gone right. straight straight from the boomers to the millennials, and and uh, us Xers are left with with there was no music for us. We didn't, you know, Pearl Jam wasn't a thing, and and nor was uh, Fifty Cent and Doctor Dre. But yeah, uh, I I certainly thoroughly enjoyed it, and it and it spoke to some of my formative years. But anyway, that's uh, anyway inflation everywhere. Inflation yeah. everywhere. Fifty cent. And yeah, exactly. On to more dominating, serious topics. Dominating the Google searches these days. So we thought yeah. we'd uh, talk a little bit about it. So, yeah. Adam, you want to set it up? Why are we talking about inflation just generally? Well, we've had some of the highest CPI prints year over year um, in decades. Um, just in the last few quarters. And um, obviously markets and um, both equities and bonds are finally reacting to this uptick in inflation. Um, Strangely, we aren't seeing inflation expectations priced in further out on the curve. If you look at uh, five-year, five-year break-evens, they really just haven't budged. So I don't think investors are pricing in sustained inflation, which is interesting given I was listening to um, Vincent Deloard talk about a large study on historical inflationary periods that he conducted. He went and curated uh, inflation data from dozens of countries over the last few hundred years. And so he's got, you know, um, thousands of um you know, country years of inflation data as his sample. And he, his finding was that once inflation ticks above 5% for a couple of quarters in a row, five years from now, inflation is still five uh, greater than 5%. So once you sort of move into a higher inflation regime, then those get embedded both mechanically in the fact that companies are are now feeling comfortable about raising prices, cost of living is going up. That means that employees are demanding higher wages. So it gets priced into wages. And then finally, it gets priced into the expectations, the adaptive expectations. And people begin to believe that inflation will persist for a long time. We're clearly seeing sort of 
people are still in the transitory phase right now. Um, and we'll start to see a shift one way or another in the longer term inflation expectations. Um, we got to just keep an eye on the five year, five years and see what, what plays out there. But I mean, clearly what's happened here is in reaction to the um, March, 2020 lockdowns, governments, uh, fire hose trillions of dollars into like directly into people's bank accounts. People paid off credit cards and unleashed a buying spree. So that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that at the same time, people were flush with um, with spending money. Full economies and, and production lines were shut down around the globe. And so you've got too much demand and too little supply. And that's, of course, being complicated even further by um, the fact that we're moving into a deglobalization phase. Um, so globalization, obviously, highly disinflationary as you're able to migrate labor overseas. So you, all of the manufacturing gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper as the um, jurisdictions with cheap labor are able to continue to bring prices lower and lower, and lower until that that was exhausted largely in 2017 when China flipped its energy policy. And um, so now we're beginning to see deglobalization and actual repricing at the, at the corporate level and at the employment level. And, you know, so we're entering a very different regime here. So I think that's what motivates a timely conversation about inflation. Right. So we've got kind of a combination of both, demand and supply shocks happening sort of simultaneously combined with some pretty significant monetary inflation that in this case, unlike sort of that 08 or sort of the last commodity boom in that early knots to 08, which was, oh, there's this money being printed and, and it's all going to get into the system. It never really did. Global growth was enough to offset whatever inflation was occurring. And it wasn't actually getting through the system, but today and the largesse and the different type of uh, monetary interactions uh, along with some uh, complicating factors around supply chains and and you know demand shocks you're re you're starting to see actual uh, inflation manifesting right through to the end user the end individual and and yeah. companies and supply chains and things like that so it is a it is it seems to be quite a sea change and, it's worthwhile, uh, I think, contrasting to, to, to 2008, because I think all three of us were guilty um, of observing the unprecedented monetary stimulus that was perpetrated by central banks in 2008 and 2009 in response to the global financial crisis. I remember perceiving at the time that the mechanics were going to be a massive increase in M2, um, banks flush with reserves and it's going to unleash a major um, lending boom. And that would then drive hyper, uh, you know, drive inflation. Turns out all of that stimulus was contained within the financial economy and never really trickled down into the real economy. And so what ended up happening is that you had capital restructuring of corporations was kind was sort of the primary reaction function to that, right? So companies went out, a, they borrowed a lot at low rates, but instead of ramping up productive capacity or 
you know, making large capital investments. Instead, they um, went to the debt market, borrowed, and then used that to buy back shares or issue dividends or whatever. So you had this sort of, it, it enabled this 10 years of financial engineering, right? It was very, very good for the capital owners, but didn't really do much for the real economy. And now we've got real money in real people's bank accounts, driving real demand at the same time as you have these interesting supply shock dynamics um, on, unfolding. So yeah, I think we've entered a different regime. Roger. Rod, muted. Rod, yeah, muted, Rod. Sorry, guys. Um, yeah, I think we talked about this last week, but the real demand is is actually quantified by an extra 20% demand on the ports, right? So this supply chain issue that we're seeing has come from the demand side. For the most part, ports just <coughs> haven't seen that level of increased demand in the last 20 years. They're not designed for it. So there's going to be a lot of work to be done if we're going to continue to put stimulus checks in people's bank accounts and or increase their income based on um, labor demand. So, you know, th this is one of the um, another one of the key drivers that is really uh, manifesting today in the CPI numbers. But there's also the other side, which is well, what about the long term deflationary um, impetus, mm -hmm. right? The fact that we have continued improvement in technology, the demographics, you know, this is the other side of the equation is that this is only momentary. People are going to go back to work. They're going to start buying less stuff. Um, the fiscal spend isn't going to be that much. And at the end of the day, this is transitory. By the end of the year, we should be back to normal. And uh, Bob's your uncle, right? So it, it, it population plays a role in that as well. So population yeah. growth, demographics, demographics, demographics debt, um, and tech, the technology uh, sort of. Um, and I think technology plays a role longer term, but it, it's going to take a while. So you've, you've got wages, which are very, very sticky. It's hard to roll back wages. And so you're going to see companies, I think, looking at automation, uh, autonomous driving, all those types of um, efforts in order to control costs and reduce costs, which are, but are going to take time to work through the system. You have to retrain a different labor force. You have to <laughs> implement that technology. You have to build it. You have to build the software side. You have to engineer it. You have to build the, the hardware side of it. It's it is a much, I think, much longer process to, to actually uh, achieve what what might be fruitful in in gains that can offset some of the wages. So it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. And that the other thing, and I know we want to talk about the, the concept of inflation, but also inflation volatility, right? So there's the right. there's the mean rate of inflation, and then there's variance around that mean rate, and that's a very those are very important concepts to sort of separate a little bit. And a lot of folks are talking about, you know, the 70s as the anal analogous period. And I think that's, uh, um, it's a little bit narrow sighted to do that. And, and, you know, the example that we've all talked about on multiple occasions is that post-World War II scenario where price controls were, relieved, were, were uh, uh, rescinded from a war economy. And in 1946 was the, the sort of first uh, piece of that where these price controls were removed and we had this burst of inflation and then a new equilibrium and then another burst and a new equilibrium. And so it wasn't just the inflation rate was increasing. It was this larger variance around the mean that provided more uncertainty with respect to you know, these two dynamics that have a lot of play in asset class pricing, which are inflation and growth obviously liquidity playing a role too, but that inflation expectation having a larger variance 
has significant impact for asset classes. And, you know, that there's that great piece from man that we'll be sharing, but you know, we haven't had inflation volatility um, or, or inflation per se since, you know, sort of 1990. So we're, yeah. we're at 30 years of extremely low inflation and a very, very consistent and low volatility around that mean. And uh, I think that bears significant consideration as well so, as we think about this. So you just kind of addressed a bunch of like specific situations around inflation. And there's another thing that what the definition of inflation is so wide varying, right? Like what, what is inflation? I know Adam, you've written a bit on this, but like what are the different types of inflation that we mean when we mean inflation? Well, yeah. So there's sort of supply shock inflation where something happens. Think about the, uh, oil embargo and the Iranian revolution in the 70s, obviously um, restricting the flow of oil and therefore the price of oil skyrocketed and triggered um, broad price increases through the economy because virtually everything that's manufactured requires energy. Um, so that's that's kind of the traditional supply end. Then there's demand side, which is, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of seeing some of that today in combination with supply-led inflation, Right. You have a major shock upward in aggregate demand as a function of governments um, expanding very sizable deficits. Again, like Mike said, we had major deficit spending during wartime. I want to say four years in a row of 15 percent or higher um, deficits as a percent of GDP during wartime. The last couple of years, we've seen, you know, 12, 13 percent of GDP in deficit spending. So, um that just leads to a major demand shock. And in combination with a little supply, that leads to um, you know, too much money chasing too little production and, and a rise in the price level. And then there's monetary inflation where governments devalue their currency by directly printing um, more money into, into the system. And other countries lose faith in the purchasing power of that currency and they begin to sell it. And the, the people that are in the economy begin to move away from using the country's unit of currency and start denominating trade in the currency of other countries or barter, um, that sort of thing. Right. And I know as we'll talk about, there are different asset class reaction functions, each of those different types of inflation. So there's, there's no, single portfolio panacea that solves the problem of all types of inflation. That's right. right. You need a broad swath of, of opportunities as, as you look through history, how each inflationary cycle manifested and changed. Uh, even the seventies sought several different types of inflation manifest during that sort of uh, very, very memorable stagflation, uh, stagflationary time period. And, within that longer time period, there was actually lots going on where, you know, oil didn't do so well for a while, uh, but other forms of inflationary hedges did. And so yeah. it, it behooves uh, asset allocators and investors uh, to, to really think that through because, you know, you don't want to, you want to buy an, an inflation hedge. And I see in the comments, um, some folks talking about, yeah, gold and tips, you know, really kind of worked. Um, over this period, and and yeah, there there's just different things that are at play what, in the asset models. Go ahead. Yeah, well, which period, right? So yeah. gold actually worked pretty well from the bottom of the commodity of the COVID crisis, 
to the end of the year because rates went from being relatively positive to negative, right? So that gold tends to do well when uh, real rates are going to the downside. That's that happened. That was a phase of inflationary of inflation. Then came lumber. Then came energies. Right. So over the last two years, we've seen inflation manifest through different commodities. Um, you know, tips is an interesting one because everything I'm reading about tips and what we've seen in terms of inflationary regime, they really don't do anything but just keep your purchasing power. They don't do anything outside real returns. Right. So that's maybe it's that's his job. That's what it's designed to do. Um, as an offset to your portfolio, to the things that are losing money in real terms, it may not be great. And so, you know, we got to, as we go through these data, the data and what has done well in the past, I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that what has done best in the past as like the number one inflation hedge may not be what is going to do best in the future. Um, so do we want to kind of bring up those asset classes first or do we want to talk about kind of the framework? No, I just, well, I, just, I think, just I think, to sort of, summarize a little bit, right? I mean, Mike and I kind of laid out the the current inflation case for su- or sustained inflation, right? I would maybe add as well a decade or more of profound underinvestment in um, transition energy and material um, sources, right? Like a massive amount of underinvestment in the development of new oil and gas properties, um, you know, Nobody wants to burn coal anymore, which is great, but that was a cheap source of abundant energy. And, you know, if you look at the current reserves of um, virtually every energy product nowadays, along with aluminum, copper, nickel, all of these commodities are near record low uh, inventory levels. And there has been no investment. And as you go through the... Uh, annual reports of the major energy companies, they're all saying we're not investing because um, under the, the, the climate targets, uh, any investments we're going to make in oil and gas will, will run counter to the objective to hold um, temperatures to a rise of 1.5% by 2050. So there's, there's these competing cross dynamics the problem being, yes, we need a sustainable future, um, and yes, we should be investing in uh, clean tech, but we need to, to have enough clean tech online in order to be able to replace what we're losing from underinvestment in traditional sources of energy in the meantime, right? So anyways, just to sort of encapsulate, that's kind of the sustained inflation uh, picture. But then Rodrigo laid out some... Uh, points that that might lead you to think that this inflation is actually quite transitory. And by the end of the year, early next year, we could be in a a disinflationary environment again, right? Another reason we could be in a a disinflationary environment is the Fed is not standing pat here, right? The governments of the world are concerned about the fact that we are seeing these high inflation prints, and they are taking steps to counter it. Central banks look like they're behind the curve, they're going to step in and they're going to raise rates over the next few months. If they raise them too aggressively, maybe that causes the economy to stall, demand to stall. We go into an, uh, into recession and a, a deflationary environment. Um, maybe the government institutes price controls or profit controls um, on companies. 
I was just reading over the last couple of days, the Washington Post just had a, an article out about how um, the, the Democrats have been polling and the concept of price caps or corporate profit controls are polling extremely positively. And so, you know, while the Council of Economic Advisors in Washington are not yet advocating for this, and in fact, they're pushing back against it. And I think we would all agree that that those policies have a lot of potential problems. This is the type of, these are the types of steps that are being considered. So we're not here to make the case for inflation or for disinflation. We're saying we're now in an environment where all these things are on the table for the first time in decades. And probably we're going to see all of them at some point over the next 10 or 20 years. We're going to see rocking inflation like we are now, maybe even worse and for longer. At the same time, we're going to see major periods of deflation as governments and other dynamics um, play into this and and swamp the the inflation dynamic for a period. So like Mike said, we need to prepare for different types of inflation and a lot more volatility in the inflation deflation dynamic. Yeah. And I think right. I, I'd love to, I'd love to get, pull the audience here. Uh, type in one, if you're in the inflation sustained camp that, Hey, this inflation is here. It's more permanent. Throw in a two. If you think the inflation remains sort of transitory, right? So it, give us, give us some indication of how you're feeling out in the audience as to what your thoughts are. Are you, one in the more inflationary sustained camp or two in the in the transitory and some sort of return to normalcy camp and let us know how you're feeling as we as we go through this yeah and i think it's it's uh, while we wait for that um it's important to visualize what inflation volatility looks like right this is a paper a series of papers that man has put up but this particular paper goes back to 1926 and helps us visualize what CPI volatility um, has looked like from, for over a century. And what's obvious here is how lucky we've been in the last 20 years to be in a period of such benign inflation that tends to be good for a, lot, a number of things, right? It tends to be good for planning. It tends to be good for um, business building. And you know, equity markets tend to thrive in that type of environment. When you have a bit more uncertainty, and by the way, you can have a more and more narrow market that way. When you have a bit more uncertainty, you know, there's there's going to be m- more dislocations across the landscape of investments. But I thought it was uh, useful to share this chart um, for everybody. Yeah, well, yeah but it, 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 just to highlight it a little bit more, you know, from 1990 to today, we've experienced inflation volatility of like around 1.3%. If you go back prior to 1990 into the late 1800s, so the previous sort of 100 years, you had inflation volatility that ran around 4.8%. Remember, this is inflation volatility. As Adam laid out, this, uh, this, this swing from, oh, it's disinflationary, it's inflationary. These things were, were happening much more regularly and had significant impacts on asset prices, where from 1990, we've had a fairly stable state of disinflation, which leads to certain asset classes like, you know, stocks, for example, or real estate, um, really having some some pretty pronounced uh, uh, returns and at low volatilities. And so as we potentially move into a regime that has more inflation, and I think we can all sort of concede that, well, certainly inflation volatility, whether this is transitory or not, 
the volatility of inflation has increased. And thus, that that is an era that's new. And that's a key concept here that I think is um, is not maybe not as understood as it could be because it's new. It hasn't happened in 30 years. And so we have a whole suite of investors, portfolio managers, allocators who have had an experience in their career, careers lasting, you know, 20, 30 years, that is purely one environment. And so it takes some time for that that Overton window to pass through acceptance and, and you know, sort of accepting a new reality, potentially, um, if that's the case. So just to give some more highlights on what, you know, how that chart was sort of representing yeah. the, the So, so the what, what was the poll question there? So we can just, we got two thirds that it said, uh, one, yeah, the, and one, one, one that they're more that in the inflationary sustainable uh, camp, and a, a couple, you know, a couple, uh, about a third are in the in the more um, transitory camp. So that that's great. Mm-hmm. I think that, and, and it's all about it's sides. all about you know the other thing as always is what do you mean by that, Mike? Like I think it's um, persistent, and for me, persistent means twelve months out, right? Are we thinking five right. years out? Are we thinking, you know, uh, maybe the people that think it's transitory, it is 12 months to, to 18 months. That's a lot sure. of time for, that, that, that we can have runaway inflation for and a lot of opportunities to make money. Well, like uh, you said, it, is, it, yeah. is it the 40s where, where we've got this burst and we're going to now have a new equilibrium, but that's, it's yeah. going to settle down? Or is it this, you know, persistent sort of uh, 70s scenario where, yeah, yeah, here, here's this type of inflation. Oh, and then here's another type. And oh, here's here's some more inflation for you. And, and oh, by the way, the central banks are going to get involved and they're going to constrain liquidity um, in order to, to fight the inflation. Oh, again, this comes back to inflation volatility versus just inflation. Yeah. And that that's, I think it's hard to argue that inflation volatility is not upon us. That I think yeah. we could categorically say the evidence points to yes, that's here, um, yep. and well, maybe it settles down. Maybe it's the forties, and we get you know another five or ten years where it it, it attenuates. I don't know, but you want to you want to think about how to prepare portfolios for that, and how those those dynamics like growth and inflation, which we talk about a lot. We have our market target. We talk about those asset classes that perform well. This maybe maybe it's time to pop that yeah, chart up. That's to, exactly uh, what I'm doing, Rod. And, and and observe that you know okay so we've got to, we've got to now take real steps in portfolios to prepare for a slightly different regime than we've had previously and maybe it's significantly different and uh, maybe Rod you want to walk through uh, this, this yeah so I mean those who have been following us have probably seen this before but this is just again like stepping back and from a fundamental framework perspective understanding what moves the markets are, are really largely two dynamics, right? You got your growth dynamics and your inflation dynamics. And different asset classes are going to do differently, whether we're in a period of accelerating growth versus decelerating growth or accelerating inflation or decelerating inflation. And when you look at the vast majority of portfolios today, we see almost everybody really hovering in that bottom two quadrants, mostly in the bottom right quadrant, which is a, a a, the requirement to thrive in that environment is benign inflation and persistent growth shocks. And what does well in that environment is developed equities and developed bonds, right? And so that's that's where we are today. Uh, that's what we've been for uh, for the last ten years. And the question is, if we are in an inflationary regime, I think I don't think we even have to question that. We have seen inflation, and what we've seen perform really well has been what is expected in this framework, which is in a rising inflation environment, commodities, gold, tips, 
are going to be decent offset. And, emerging uh, equities are, are interesting too. I mean, emerging equities, equities yeah. as mm-hmm. of yesterday, I I think it was yesterday, they were they were up on the year, right? Mm-hmm. While yeah. developed markets were, are, are down sort of five to 10% or more. So, yeah. And yeah. this is one of those interesting things from a decade long experience. You know, if we, if we went back to 2000, US equities had done so well. And then from 2000 to 2010, 11, 12, 14, US equities have really struggled. Um, what, what did well? What did well? Emerging markets did well. The Canadian resource economy did well. The currencies related to those uh, types of, of uh, countries did well. Uh, international real estate did well. And so, you know, we, we're in a situation where if you look at, you know, the last decade of returns and valuations on, let's say, U.S. equities that represent that disinflationary growth quadrant, they've pulled a lot of those future returns into current valuations. Contrast that with emerging markets over the last 10 years, you know, much better valuations. Um, price action has not been great over the last decade. And so they they haven't pulled those future returns into today. So for thinking about, you know, how is this going to be over the next 10 years, as you mentioned, Rod, like where's the puck going to be? Um, you know, you have to make those considerations when you're making your allocations. Yeah. And I think, you know, let's take a look at the empirical data. Uh, So we just said, theoretically, these asset classes should do well in an inflationary regime. Um, Let's let's kind of go through some of man's conclusions from that same paper and just take a look uh, which asset classes do well, um, which asset classes struggle. Uh, If I can find it here. Yeah, let me share the screen. Okay, so again, this is going back to uh, 1926, and and the two columns to look at here is the periods of inflation on the right-hand side here. So when they looked at the 1926 to now period, they found that 19% of the time we've experienced, we've been in an inflationary regime, and the other 81% of the time it's other, right? And um, as expected from that framework, you're seeing the best-performing uh, asset classes, energies, right? And I think a lot of that has to do with you know, looking at the 70s, that was a big player, the energy space. Is that going to be the, the case in the future? We don't know. I think we talked a little bit about this. Other kind of long-only asset classes, again, commodities, industrials, aggregate commodities, gold, precious metals. Um, those are kind of from a passive uh, allocation perspective. We'll talk a little bit about the other categories here, which is trend, all asset trend, commodity trend, those tend to do really, really good job during inflationary periods. And then the big losers are, again, what we expect, right? Consumer uh, durables, long equities is, is going to struggle. Long duration fixed income, you know, the 30-year treasury had in that inflationary regime an annualized rate of return of negative 8%. Um, you know, high yield fixed income, negative 7 The 10-year treasury, negative 5 um, What else? What else are we looking Interesting at? residential real estate. Um, I think a lot of people have a perception that owning a home is good protection against inflation. And in fact, if you look back historically, um, all the way to 1877, I think this goes, the real estate, residential real estate has delivered a return of negative 2% annualized during inflationary periods. And I would argue that given 
the current structure of residential real estate where loaned values are much, much higher in the current environment than they were in other inflationary periods. And we're starting from a much lower um, you know, initial rate. I would argue that the real estate market, residential real estate is as vulnerable as it's ever been right now to rising rates. And I think a lot of Americans um, perceive that because you're able to get a 30-year mortgage that that offers protection. And to some extent it does. Um, but what it means is that the ability to get credit to buy, a, to buy your home, you know, for someone else to buy your home, it gets more and more difficult, right? So for example, if I go back to 2019, the, um, the, the average rate on, sorry, the average monthly payment on a new mortgage in the US was about $1,700. The average payment at the end of 2021 is about $2,200. And you know, that's a combination of larger mortgages on average and um, higher rates on those mortgages, right? So what it's gonna have an impact on primarily is labor mobility and new household formation. So young people are just not going to be able to afford to own homes. They're less likely to have families or they'll delay having families. They'll have fewer children. Um, you know, so, so these are not insignificant challenges. Yeah. And the prices yeah. are not going to go up. For so it, so you, you have price volatility in the underlying asset. I, I suppose some of the inflation hedge on the, on the residential real estate side comes from the fact that if you've owned your home and you've paid it off, or you have this locked in payment, then your cost of living has a slightly reduced exposure potentially than if you're a renter. Um, so there, there is a, there's a portion of it that, that can help. Um, yep. but, but it, again, you know, if you're, you, so you're offsetting that, but the, if the price is declining, your, your balance sheet, your personal balance sheet isn't, isn't improving particularly, but yeah. you've got a bit of a hedge there. And those equity line of credit, they, they get cheaper, they get harder to get. The yep. collateral that you can use on the house is lower. Like it's, yep. there's lots of ways that it affects, that it, it affects the economy. And, um, yep. and like I said, historically, the, you know, residential real estate has just not been a very good inflation hedge, negative 2% annualized returns yep. during previous inflationary episodes. Rod, do you have the other, um, the other sort of market chart with the uh, were we going to bring that one up as well? With the you want to do that? Which as one? The nineteen seventies and and two thousand. Uh, the one where it has the actual asset prices, and you've got the yellow and red boxes with the bear market. Uh, the partial correlation that? ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, because I, I think that's telling, informative to wrap. It tells the same story, but it's it kind of telling it the same story. Yeah. Um, but a little yeah. bit more. Because I, mean, yeah. I, I think that's informative to, to sort of. Yeah. So I think it's it's a similar story here. Let me just. Yeah, that's the one. Again, uh, what we're seeing here is you have in the y-axis uh, near the top, you're seeing what is correlated to persistent positive growth shocks. And near the bottom of the y-axis is persistent negative growth shocks. And the x-axis to the left, it's uh, persistent negative inflation shocks, so deflation or disinflation. And then to the right is persistent positive growth uh, inflation shocks. And when you examine where everybody largely is at, we just talked about real estate. Uh, we talked about 60-40. 
Um, you know, we could add private equity in here. We could have private credit. Like they're all going to live in that top left. They're going to be highly correlated to a disinflationary growth environment, right? And so, you know, 60-40 is also way up with, there with equities because the 60-40, even though you only have 60% of equities, the risk contribution from equities is 90%. So whatever equities do, your 60-40 is going to follow. Uh, so the treasuries don't provide much protection in terms of bear markets. So the big blind spots clearly right now, if we're going to, when you see a, a period of inflation volatility, you see a lot of dislocations, right? So first of all, one of them is inflation and therefore a, a possible solution might be commodities. You see here that commodities are the only thing on the top right quadrant that can protect or offset some of the losses here uh, from 6040. Um, but also these types of this type of inflation volatility leads to dislocations that oftentimes lead to bear markets that have negative growth shock uh, consequences. And a 60-40, as we know, tends to have these very prolonged bear markets because, again, they're dominated by that equity uh, component. And so there's major blind spots in traditional portfolios right now, both from the inflation side and the persistent bear market, not these like liquidity shocks that we've experienced in the last 10 years, but rather an actual changing of the guard from a bear market perspective. So that's, that's I think, is an informative graph as well. Yeah, that's uh, a it good... really highlights the, 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 you know, where we've been over the last 10 years. And mm -hmm. so you've had a, a market cap adjustment because those assets that are in the top left quadrant have done so well. And so people have probably allocated a little bit more there. And the allocations that they had 10 years ago have grown significantly in comparison to the other opportunities to invest. So unless you've been rebalancing uh, um, judiciously and continuing to allocate to these other quadrant assets, which would have been a drag for the last 10 years, you would have faced significant pushback from the asset owner potentially um, because you know they're, they're not keeping up with everybody else who's just doing something that's more simple, easier to understand. And this comes back to, well, are we managing assets over one decade? Are we managing them over decades? How are we thinking about that? Are we making a prediction with the allocation to the top left quadrant versus preparation? So how might we think about being prepared for all the manifestations and then thinking about how we might uh, impart some prediction or tilts to the portfolio. So it, it seems to be a pretty, a pretty opportune setup for, you know, the, the last decades darling to become the next decades dog potentially. potentially. I think that's a really, really key point, right? Because if I think the best example of that is the, um, the weightings in the S and P 500. Right? Correct. Yeah. Where, you know, obviously it's been, an unbelievable decade for big tech, big cap tech and big cap tech is currently, or, you know, within the last few weeks anyways, um, was by far the largest sector in the S and P larger, um, as a proportion of total market cap than at any other time, other than the last couple of years in the 1990s, uh, tech bubble. And so, you know, you've got some companies and some sectors in the S and P that are designed to do well in inflationary periods. And, you know, if you go back and examine the returns to sectors over the past century um, conditioned on inflationary environments, there's only a few sectors that actually do okay. And even the best ones don't really do that well. 
So energy historically has done the best with about a one or two percent annualized return real during inflationary episodes. Um, mining, gold companies, they're sort of flat to slightly down to slightly up. Healthcare, flat to slightly down, slightly up. So um, sadly, the sectors that should do well in an inflationary regime represent a minuscule portion of the total S&P right now. And the sectors that are most vulnerable to uh, an inflationary regime currently represent by far the largest allocation in the S&P. So, you know, this I think this is a bad situation, especially for developed market e- equities and U.S. cap-weighted equities in particular. Yeah, and, and we've seen that transition previously. I mean, we, we've lived through the, the tech uh, boom where we saw tech become a very large uh, part of the S&P. How big was Exxon in that? And then fast forward to 2008, where Exxon becomes the largest company in the S&P. Fast forward 10 years from that. And again, you see that energy wave, those large companies S&P have, have uh, become much smaller. And then, so if you're going to accept market cap weighting, then that's your, that's your allocation. And, and as the, until it changes, you're, you'll be behind the curve, I suppose, if you have a regime change. You're going to have much smaller allocations to things that do well, and you're going to have much larger allocations that, to things that do, do um, poorly in an environment which has changed from disinflation and growth and the discount rate that we're applying to these growth companies um, into the future for 20 or 30 years. Those are going to suffer, and you'll, you'll end up with, with those sectors that do well, but you're just going to have a very small allocation until they grow into the, the new cash flows as the, as the uh, markets readjust themselves. Yeah. And, and this is where the, the passive market cap weighted, you know, portfolio, cheap portfolio that everybody's bought into will suffer. And where I think active management may have opportunities at every level, right? Like from stock selection to bond selection, to active long, short manager selection, and in AQR's paper, what I'm showing here is kind of their view of what's if we are in an inflationary volatility regime, what to do. And, you know, again, from that that uh, quadrant chart, it's not uh, surprising that you want to diversify internationally, because generally speaking, when there's inflation, there's emerging markets that are commodity driven, that are benefiting from the um, the rise in commodity prices. You might see other global opportunities by the fact that the dollar tends to suffer, you know, and it's it's easier for international markets to compete um, within equities. You know, again, Adam talked about it, like you're likely if you if you take preemptive steps to skew towards gold, healthcare, energies, uh, shorten duration for your fixed income, reduce credit risk, um, you go to floating rate issuances um, and then the alternative strategies. This is a big one. Nobody wants to do this right now, but it's reduce your private equity allocations. I think they're the most susceptible. Uh, buy some commodities, and I think we're going to make a case also for long, short, multi-asset. Right? Uh, this is this is the opportunity. I think this is where active management starts to to shine again. Yeah. Well, why don't you uh, talk a little bit about dispersion, Rodrigo, as well? Because I think that yeah. you're you know, you're on a roll here. Keep going. Well, I think that um, we, t- we tend to be talking about inflation exclusively, but the reality is that dispersion of uh, uh, dispersion of volatility means dispersion across all asset classes, right? There are 
downstream effects to having uh, volatility go through the roof. I just mentioned a few. You have emerging markets that are going to benefit in a way that they haven't in the last decade, right? It's been one place, but nine inflation and uh, persistent growth shocks, being able to see the future ahead of you, you're going to pay, pay money to the highest growth stocks. It's cheap for you to to, to borrow money in order to, to have that happen. When rates start going up, uncertainty gets higher. Uh, dispersion starts to happen. There's going to be big losers, big winners. Global diversification starts to help. Currencies start to go in a different way. It, it used to be U.S. dollar and everything else. Now we're starting to see much more diversification between the, the pairs. And so it's it's the, the idea that multi-assets, to, like, and even risk parity, anything that's just not S&P 500 or NASDAQ, uh, did so much better than S&P and NASDAQ in the 2000s was due to the, to the amount of opportunity sets that they were. And so all of a sudden you go from having a tool set that is, I have to buy the fangs, to an opportunity set that is much broader from within equity markets in value versus growth, you know, energy markets. Like these are really going to be dispersion opportunities um, that might save you and might give you not just an opportunity to, to, to minimize the loss of your purchasing power, but maybe even thrive during that decade, right? But it needs mm-hmm. to be a massive mindset, a, a, a shift in mindset. And, and you have to realize now that your tool set got huge and right. you haven't used these, they're rusty. You have to yeah. relearn how to use them and, and yeah. to remind yourself why you hated them and discarded them. So you probably have to go buy a few new tools again right then you have to yeah. change your ips in order to be able to add assets so this is something it's crazy to me um just talking to different committees how they've changed their investment policy statements to never be allowed to add alternative strategies or commodities in their uh, portfolio because of their experience in the last 10 years so there's going to have to be a major overhaul to be able to access that tool set um yeah, but and, it's and going the dispersion. to be the dispersion yeah. creates the opportunity. Of course. Right? Yeah. We, we've had one thing do really well and everything else suck. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that's kind of meh. But now you've got, well, there's going to be a myriad of things that are doing well at different times. And the thing that has been so reliable and so consistent may not be that reliable and consistent. Right? So if if you have a, a, a suite of 20 asset classes that you can invest in and they're all going to be up 15%, and they're correlated, well, there's no opportunity really for any kind of outperformance other than levering that. Whereas if you have, you know, those same 15 or 20 asset classes that have significant dispersion in their returns, now you've got some opportunity for the rebalancing um, tailwind. You've got some opportunity to position yourselves in the different asset classes. As you said, it's the return of well, active management. Well, yeah. And, and let's let's just take one step back here because I think this is a conversation about inflation. And when I speak with allocators, they are all contemplating what to, what solutions. There are a lot of them. The first the first thing they're doing is starting to lean towards more commodity based equities, which is you know interesting and useful. But a lot of them are thinking about these passive commodities, right? Like let's let's just do that. And I think I'm gonna kind of. We talked about inflation volatility, but let's talk about the tool of commodities, right? This idea that, look, we're going to have a a decade of inflation. Uh, And when people, you said it earlier, Mike, uh, everybody thinks about the 70s as the decade of inflation. But, you know, it wasn't a decade of inflation. It was a decade of inflation volatility 
what I'm showing on the screen now is um, is in yellow. You have the commodities uh, making 650% from point to point time capsule. You know, you put it in your portfolio, wake up 10 years later, you've killed it and you've more than offset the losses in real terms that you've experienced from your equities and your bonds, which are the bottom two lines. But man, did you have to hold on for, for a huge ride, right? There's a that is you're at, you're you're certainly solving the problem of the decade, but in between the difficulty with being with using pure commodities as your tool um, to fight against inflation is whether you'll be able to stick to it long enough to to garner the fruits of of your labor. And so this is the 1970s again. The last commodity boom cycle was a similar thing, from 2000 to. The peak of the commodity cycle, which was February 2011, you had massive volatility, two major bear markets, one 31% drawdown, another 60% drawdown. The drawdown in the 70s, I didn't mention, was 37%, and it took and three, lasted years, three years. And lasted years. Right? Yeah. So the issue, the issue <clears throat> like, how, how should we be thinking about this problem of inflation volatility? Should it be blunt instrument commodities? Or do we go back to this dispersion of opportunities and recognize that it's more than just inflation, it's more than just commodities, it's opening up the whole tool set and, and how that could benefit you, not just from a commodity, from a, uh, an inflation perspective, but from possibly even protecting you and thriving during bear markets, right? Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a function of the portfolio construction now. Yeah. Right. So you've got you've got this asset class. You say, oh, well, I'll just do commodities. And uh, oh, God, I'm doing so great. And in the middle of the commodities run in the 70s, you have a 30 percent, 37 percent drawdown over three, four years. That's going to be a bit of a punch in the gut. And it and so, presupposes that, you know, that that correct going into an inflationary environment in the first yeah. place. Right. That's, that's the next point that I wanted to make. Because yeah. first of all, I also point out that you guys remember late 2007, all the major institutions were buying up that Deutsche Bank commodity index as a passive mm -hmm. allocation of commodities. Of course, again, wrong place at the wrong time, right before that 60% correction. A bunch of them got shaken out and they missed the opportunity from the bottom. I think commodities bottomed in December 28, 2008 and then went for a massive run again until February 2011, right? So it's really tough to stick to, right? And yeah. that's a good, that is the best outcome, by the way. The last two decades isn't it during an inflationary or commodity boom cycle. That's your best outcome. The reality is, like you said, you have to time it right, right? Because the um, the AQR, the, AQR the, the man paper goes on to show us that inflation has only happened 19% of the time in the last 100 years. The other 81% of the time, most commodity buckets have a negative carry. And if you include just all of them as a bucket, you have a positive carry of 1%, right? So are you going to use this as a strategic tool forever? No. I mean, if this is, because this is why nobody has them, because they've experienced the 81%. And so now it's up to the allocator to, to be a market timer. And that's, a, that's just a tough thing, right? Um, so I don't think, I think my conclusion is that commodities on their own from an asset allocation perspective, where you are having to show that line item may not be an ideal solution. And, and I would I would add that in the two charts you showed in those inflationary regimes, the S&P does not do very well. And so, you know, that that's that. that yes. OK, there's solutions. And why do we need the solutions? Well, you know, uh, 2000, 2009, the, you know, the return is is 
very, very de minimis. And in the 70s, on a real basis, it's a negative. The real return to U.S. equities during the 19% of the time you're in an inflation regime, the real return compounds at negative 7%. That's right. And so that's what's so important about inflation and inflation volatility and its impact on asset class prices, right? This is why this is so pertinent and relevant for um, those who are allocating assets over multi-decade periods, because it's not a um, if, it's when. So it happens, historically speaking, 19, let's call it 20% of the time. So a fifth of the time, this happens. And if you're an allocator who allocates long-term assets over multi-decades, you are assured that you are going to be in a period that has this inflation, these inflationary dynamics. And thus, um, if you're not allocating the assets that can help uh, provide those real returns for those asset users, then you have to cut programs, uh, cut spending if you're an individual, and so there are very real implications for the end asset user that are unpleasant if one just says, I'm going to ignore this. Right. But we have to make it more palatable. Agreed. I think, again, going back to the you've used you've used a hammer and you've used a, a saw and now we have this massive yeah. toolbox and you don't know what to do. So. Now we need to introduce something that's more palatable. We're, we're asking people to buy gold or buy commodities, and we're showing how difficult that would be, right, behaviorally. And so when when I read this paper, I was like, okay, this really makes a lot of sense because you want have, to have something that protects you during the 19% of the time we're in inflationary regimes, but also something that has a positive carry and possibly pretty decent results the other times, right? And so not surprisingly, this is a man report. They did a trend a simple trend on bonds, FX, equity, commodities, right? This is, again, this is not trend commodities, right? This is all of them. And the point here being it's because dispersions of, of, of asset class returns, both on shorts and longs, become much more abundant across the board. So bond trend was a massive inflation hedge, right? Commodity trend obviously is a good inflation trend. Uh, equity and FX did okay, right? So all of a sudden you just have opportunities everywhere to offset those negative returns you're getting from a real in real terms from equities and fixed mm-hmm. income and then the other 81% of the time the the average of this all asset trend is annualized 15% rate of returns now the problem with the other 81% of the time is that there are many periods like the last decade where you have a single market dominating all of the returns and you're going to drastically underperform that and it's going to be yeah. tough. But it's, it, you know, in spite of all the hate trend has gotten in the last decade, it's still offered positive carry. It, 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 it's not like commodities, which we'll show you in a second, um, which had a pretty bad outcome. Yeah. So, so what, are, what are we, let's expand the toolbox. Yeah. What are we going to do? So go yeah. ahead. So, so here, like, this is just, again, to, to finish off the thought here, AQR did, it's kind of separated in three. We talked a little bit about what happens during inflationary shocks. Uh, there were a few comments by Brian in the, in the comments section about like persistent inflation, right? Where you get to 4%, you stay that way. So the middle bars here, the dark blue bars is what happens to these different asset classes during a persistent inflation, stable inflation. And then the light blue bars are when you have 
negative inflation shocks, right? And commodities are linear, right? They do really, really well during periods of inflationary, positive inflationary shocks. They don't do well. They don't have a lot of positive carry during um, uh, stable inflation, and they really hurt you when it's deflation, right? And the opposite of that is U.S. Treasuries, right? Um, but then when you look at trend, you have this smile with a big, thick center as well, where you have the opportunity to provide true positive carry even when inflation is persistent, right? Again, talking about the dispersion of opportunities. And the other one here is macro, right? So trend and macro seem to have this smile across these th three different regimes. Yeah, and the blue just bar, to, just the just blue bars there are periods when your traditional portfolios are kicking ass, right? Like the light yeah. blue bar, when when inflation is benign, there's no material inflation shocks in either direction, your classic cap-weighted 60-40 style portfolio is rocking, right? And, you know, trend is doing something that's kicking along, um, but the other traditional segment of the portfolio is going to completely dominate. What's so great about trend and macro momentum is, or macro, is that when those traditional markets that you love to hold are suffering, that's when trend and macro have their best years. Mm -hmm. And so they really are a terrific complement. Yeah. And, and so what did that, now we're going to go back to those two decades, because I think it's important to kind of show what that looks like. Um, and so this, I start here with the 2000 to 2011 period. And I'm going to add some multi-asset, right? Some active multi-asset. The yellow line continues to be commodities with that 31% loss and that 60% loss. Uh, of course, a strategy near and dear to our hearts is risk parity. So we're just using the advanced research risk parity index here. What's fascinating about this index is that it did just as well as commodities at the from point to point, almost like to the T, but without the volatility. Right. A little bit of volatility there in 08, but largely speaking, it cruised through that inflationary period. But importantly, the the Goldman Sachs macro risk premium index with here, we, we've scaled it to 10 percent and deducted a 3 percent performance fee uh, or fee on it. Um, it. It actually absolutely crushes it because, again, that dispersion of opportunity, the ability to make money in trend and value and, and carry when there's dispersion is just astounding, right? And if we take this to the 70s, it's the exact same story, right? Like risk parity does just as well as this risk parity of 10% volatility does just as well as commodities do without the volatility, without a 37% drawdown. And then in this case, I'm using AQR's future diversified trend index Again, because of that diversification and, and the opportunity sets that are abundant, you do really, really well, right? So if, if you're thinking about an inflation hedge, I, would, I dare say this might be a good place to start. The real question is, why, hasn't, why isn't everybody buying into this? Why haven't we discovered this and are doubling down and selling our private equity and buying as much as we can of this? And of course, it comes down to the fact that the last 10 years, so this is a chart showing the same asset classes from 2011, the peak of the commodity crisis, to roughly now. Well, you know, it did okay. Again, positive carry for both strategies, but the S&P has uh, absolutely dominated returns. 
Uh, why not commodities? Well, you can see why not commodities, right? It it began to go down after the uh, commodity uh, boom cycle. The, the peak in the recovery. cycle in 2011. Yeah. And it hasn't recovered in 10 years. And we've had 155% drawdown and a bunch of other, you know, double digit drawdowns in between. And as you, the other thing to point out is this is indicative of all asset classes, but in the yellow line here, you'll see that there's not a lot of dispersion. There's not, it just kind of flatlines sideways for most of the last 10 years. And when you have little opportunity, when you have out of your 70 futures contracts that you can invest in one or two asset classes to truly lean on for returns, you're just not going to, it's not going to be your decade. And so I just, I read a tweet uh, yesterday, yesterday, the day before about how uh, KKR has increased their, basically increased their allocations by over 50% in a single year. And they're a billion dollar organization, right? This is what was happening to CTAs in 09 after the 08 crash. I remember it vividly. It's one of the biggest, like the largest uh, funds that the alternative strategy funds in Canada was Man AHL. And everybody was doubling down on this. Um, and over the decade, they started dying off the vine. And now AHL doesn't even offer it in Canada. We, you know, they closed it. They literally closed it in November or no, December of 2019, four months before the COVID crisis, right? So this is why nobody cares, nobody likes these things. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, all right, maybe commodities are rough, but maybe we can, you know, the worst thing that can happen with multi-asset could be just a, a single digit rate of return if everything continues to back to normal. But if we're right and there's inflation volatility, it might be the it might be a massive opportunity that you're missing out on, right? Well, and it's and it's 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 it, you're taking a bet whether mm -hmm. you think you are or not. And so, you know, as as you've mentioned, if if you go to the previous chart and you look at those periods in the '70s and whatnot, you'll probably see the the biggest adoption of you know trend following futures in 1979 and 1980 because they'd outperformed right. the the dominant you know um equity index <clears throat> much like you may be seeing that day in the dominant equity index having pretty private large equity. and broad adoption and private equity and those types of things and, and um and you know you look back at the last 10 years <clears throat> and you say well why would i own any of those other things they've done nothing but reduce uh my potential returns and this is i mean this is the this is performance chasing at its best it's that you know um, behavioral bias, you know, what we, how can I do things that haven't done well? How am I going to sell that to a board? How am I going to put it in portfolios? How do you, as a, an advisor, uh, you, you go in, someone comes into your office and you say, okay, we need, you know, you need 30% exposure to these alternative asset classes. And they say, well, show me how that's done over the last 10 years. And you, you show them an equity line that is substantially below the simple strategy of buy and hold. And so that's really, really a, a difficult conversation to have at all levels of strata, whether it's institutional, retail. This is a really tough conversation to have. And you've seen that consistent narrowing of opportunities in the IPSs uh, broadly across all of that, all of those, uh, that continuum of asset owners. Yeah. And, and so, and you know, this also, happens over and over again. Yeah. And we haven't seen inflation, but we also haven't seen prolonged bear markets. Right. So Precisely. I think the, the interesting part of this is that I just went through those charts. Right. And I'm going to go through them again, but just highlight, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Mike, when there's this type of inflation volatility, there are a lot of bear markets. And so how do these multi-asset strategies do in bear markets? Well, they, they do really well 
right? 82% positive returns during the credit crisis bear market in the Goldman Sachs index, 28% positive returns during the 08 crises. Um, and then, I think that's the, the you, you mentioned it's the tech the tech crisis that you mentioned for, tech, just for those credit, listening yeah eighty two percent versus forty seven down in the tech crisis and then you know fifty three percent decline in the great financial crisis versus twenty eight percent for the global macro sorry go ahead just yeah and for those seventies during that mid seventies bear market that was a forty two percent correction in the S and P and the that's um, nominal. That's nominal. And then you have the AQR index up 138%, right? So we just haven't experienced these like good old fashioned bear markets. And and a lot of this, this space has been vilified because they haven't done fantastically well in really abrupt liquidity shocks, but that's not what they're designed for, right? If we go back to these traditional ones, I, you know, I, I think they will perform really, really well. Um, and, and, and now you gotta, so one of the best things about all of this is just going back to that, um, target chart is th- you can, you may be able to kill two birds with one stone, right? You're not right. just, we're, we started this conversation with, with, uh, uh, inflation protection and what could offset it. We showed that possibly the best option is multi-asset long short. And then by happenstance, we stumbled upon the fact that, oh, they also solved the bear market issue. So I think we got to stop thinking about particularly the multi-asset space as a, uh, as a just an alt that you want to have a nice to have to have a little bit of extra juice and more about a pillar of portfolio construction. Not a 5% allocation, but kind of think about it from a risk parity lens and say, Okay, you got your equities and you got your bonds. Everybody knows those. I got a third thing that the purest risk parity guys tell me I should have commodity purely, but I know that's not going to work. This may this may replace commodities and actually do a better job, right? I think it's so, worth talking about why multi-asset trend and multi-asset macro trading um, are useful and and empirically more useful than just commodity trend and commodity um, macro trading. And it's because sometimes the best place to bet on inflation is by shorting bonds. Um, Sometimes the best way to bet on a negative growth shock is to short equities. And so, you know, just the commodity trend idea is, it seems intuitive, like you kind of want to get long commodities and you like the trend overlay but you're missing the opportunity from shorting some of the markets that are uh, functionally designed to not do well in inflationary shocks like bonds, for example. And that's why the multi-asset trend that includes allocations to, to trend equities and trend um, FX and trend, uh, trend rates does substantially better than just the trend commodities in virtually every period. And, and there's a reason why you get to kill two birds with one stone, as Rodrigo says, is that, well, what causes major prolonged bear markets? Well, a lot of the time it's substantial and substantial and persistent inflation shocks. So you Which have the central a, banks need to step in and, and raise rates to the point to slow demand in order to, to right. contain inflation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so there, there's, there's a structural reason why you have this opportunity to uh, hedge a portfolio against these two very critical risk factors with this approach. 
Yeah. And because that's driven by these inflation volatility, inflation and its volatility and those shocks that come with it. So you've got some offset and that helps attenuate those large drawn out bear markets. And, and, and Adam, just to put some numbers to the comment that you made about why not just trend commodities versus trend all assets in the man paper, you can see here that trend all assets during an inflationary regime. You're, you're not sharing your screen, Ron. If, if you're I'm not going to share. I'm just going to talk. Oh, about I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So trend all assets. Let's talk about trend commodities annualized at 20 percent during the 19 percent of the time that was inflation. So 20 percent during inflationary periods and 8 percent other. Right. Positive returns. So positive carry and other 20 percent in inflation. The all asset did 25 percent annualized and 15 percent in other. Right. So. You know, there. This is an interesting thing. Again, you, the intuition is that you want to do commodities, and the intuition, well, what do we, why don't we do commodity trends? And then you come to the conclusion that it's not just about inflation; it's about the all of the dynamics, the knock-on effects around inflation volatility. So let's and, and, let's. Oh, sorry, Mike, you, you finish. Just up. last point: we hear yeah. this over and over again as we're interacting with with allocators, investors, advisors. This whole idea: well, I'll just buy some energy stocks, or I'll just I'll do this little thing, or I'll allocate here and there. And it's well, it's kind of a step in an okay direction. But there's if you can broaden your mind a little bit and open your mind and do the work in order to get comfortable with the strategies and and understand how the al- allocation methodologies work. I think you can you can get comfort and actually be excited about the opportunity to differentiate um, given the potential for a slightly different regime or a significantly different regime. So let's talk about how the rubber hits the road here. Like um, for investors that want to take this kind of step, what are some of the options, right? I mean, obviously one option, which may be a good first step is to take Rodrigo, what Rodrigo said, which is, kind of trim back your 60-40 portfolio to free up some capital and then allocate to a few trend and macro trading funds, right? To get some juice there on the inflation side, right? So that's kind of a simple step that I think most advisors can take to some extent. And then, you know, we've obviously done a lot of talking recently, published papers, et cetera, indices, about this return stacking concept where you actually don't need to take away exposure from your core holdings, but rather you can stack these trend and macro trading strategies directly on top of a full exposure to 60-40. So maybe, Rod, you're sort of the progenitor here, why don't you talk about that? Yeah, and I so this is, by the way, Milan um, just uh, added uh, a comment here, like throw throw in some... uh, convexity and, you know, take advantage of that downside, maybe some upside from newfound and uh, Simplify has some structure affluences. Yes, of course, this is the, the stacking returns piece was written with Corey Hosting from newfound. So if you go to returnstacking.com, you'll be able to download the paper. But the long and short of that is that you, um, for, again, talking about behavior, right? The reason nobody, everybody sold this out is because you're dragging returns down in a decade where CTAs and, and global macro have done single digit. Okay, so what's the solution to this? How can we give you what you need? How can you get that behavioral um, need for tracking the market that you care about and also get the sugar on top, the protection on top, um, where you're not going to give up on it in a decade where it does single digits? Where 
Today, there are a number of products that have stacking embedded into their products, meaning you give them $100, you can get more than $100 of two different types of betas, bonds, equity, so 90% bond equity, 60% bonds, or an alpha and a beta, so 50% SPY and 100% equity, or uh, the funds that we sub-advise uh, have risk parity stacked on top of that is systematic global macro. So you add a simplify, has some you know basic beta with convexity, Hofstein has and, and Newfound has you know 75% active equity, 75% active bond. So it goes on and on. And then you can put them together in a way where, in the in the case of the report, we did 60 equities, 40 bonds, and then 30 CTA and 30 um, uh, global macro. And we just did this analysis, Corey and I, for the last decade, you know, the, the difference between the 60-40 and the stacked return is is positive. There's a positive carry there, an annualized return of about one, but it's kind of small, right? What does that mean? Well, you got you got your diversification and you didn't give up on it. But then if you examine that same portfolio from 2000 to 2011, the stacking is, is like 500 basis points. It's a massive dispersion, right? So it's a, it's a way to think about capital efficiency using 40 ag funds that allow you to, to stick to it. And then maybe if we're right about inflation volatility, you get, you get, a, you get a boost and a, and a bonus. Yeah. And a, and it's, it's addressing the behavioral vulnerability of tracking error. And at the moment, in today's world, the tracking errors to the 60-40. Mm-hmm. We kind of, that's not always the case as we've experienced through our careers, that it's not always the US 6040 that is the uh, premium or paramount tracking error issue. Well, you and couldn't so, talk investors into buying S&P in 2007. <laughs> they, wanted, yeah. they wanted nothing to do with it, right? Yeah. Um, so, and, and so again, it's that, it's that you know, what is, what is it that the investor, the end investor can actually tolerate is a very important part of the calculus that goes into what you can propose for them. And my my estimate estimation is that as we move through the next decade, we may see an attenuation of that peak tracking error being to the sixty forty. Maybe so, not, maybe not. But that would be you know my thinking is I would propose that that's a probable event. But who knows? What do I know? Sorry, well, look, go ahead. Uh, just just I just wanted to. I had we, Corey and I put these together um, today actually. So here you can see it. This is the last decade where the, the blue line is a 60-40 portfolio and the black line is a stacked return index, right? Some benefits, some uh, excess return, not amazing, but better than the yellow line, which is the non-levered version, right? Where you're just making room in the last decade to add those diversifiers. Right. Um, but you've you actually go back, got to take capital allocation away, away from, from the 60-40 your, what, yeah, in right. order to add it over here. Rather, let's stack it on top. Yeah. And by the way, I'm not opposed to that. I think it's yeah. awesome. And you should do that if that's the only thing you can do and leverage is something that you can't you can't do. It's just you, you then just have to think about it in a different way. Um, but here's the contrast, right, to the, the previous decade, 2000s, right? Even the non-levered index did significantly better, right? And acted as that diversifier we've been saying and acted as a protection against bear markets, but certainly the stacked version of it did even better. Um, so anyway, food for thought in terms of like rubber meeting uh, hitting the road, that is that is how to think about this. And that, that might be a behavioral way of getting better at it for yourselves, your clients, your institution, 
um, whatever the case may be. We publish an index page too for the return stacking index and it, you can find it at returnstacking.live. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll, well, there's one last thing, right? Because when you have these discussions, the first thing that comes to mind is, wait, hold on a second. Are you telling me, like I was thinking about adding a 5% position to this as my diversified alternative sleeves, right? I have this, I have private credit, I have my long short manager, I have a market neutral manager. Um, what should I do with those? And I'm not opposed to having any one of those as an alpha overlay, especially if you can stack them. Okay, because you can. The thing about market neutral, for example, is that it's not designed to be a diversifier in periods of inflation or or negative growth shocks. Right? It's designed to give you two to three hundred basis points a year. So it's kind of like the cherry on top, right, of your cake. For example, I see it as that, where inflation is ten percent. You're going to get two to 300 basis points, so negative 700 basis points of, of real return. Uh, you get deflation 400%, you're going to get 200 basis points. That's not going to change. The difference between those types of alts and CTAs and, and global macro is that you would expect them to do really outsized double-digit returns in both those prolonged periods of inflation and prolonged periods of bear markets if, if history and the and the analysis that we've done is any indication. And so the, the the last thing I'll say about alternatives that I try to point out and I'll show here is that the correlations of these um, alternatives, you know, one of the biggest complaints about hedge funds is that they're not really hedging, right? Like they, they're supposed to be different, but they're quite similar. And I got to say that there is something to that. And um, just share my screen here quickly. Um, there is something to that when we look at this slide, which I just grabbed the, um, the hedge fund indices in the HFRI um, database. You know, we're looking at uh, activist, head, equity hedge, market directional event driven, special set, value arbitrage, absolute return, convertible, merger, and relative value, market neutral. And then the first line is the S&P, the correlation of the S&P. So we've ordered them, Corey and I from most correlated to least correlated. And we do get, again, to the point where the the only one that I see is lowly correlated uh, enough to warrant it being called a hedge fund is the market neutral index. But again, that's not designed to be a pillar of portfolio construction. When we move into the CTA, Stockton CTA and macro risk premia, they're non-correlated to equities and non-correlated to fixed income, right? Um, which I think we talked about throughout this podcast. Um, the other two that are worth mentioning in terms of non-correlation is the currency index, though currency is already embedded in both the CTA and the global risk premia. And then the short bias index uh, that has the lowest correlation, but sadly, it also has a persistent negative carry to it, right? So why, when you are considering uh, your alt sleeve and you have a limit as to how much you can do, and you're worried about inflation and bear markets, I got to say, like, you got to think about booting the private equities and all the, the, the things that are just other ways of equity and really beefing up your inflation protection and bear market protection. That, that, yeah. I mean, we got to think about it this way. Yeah. yeah. It's a function of the real estate, right? So you've got limited real estate. And what portfolio is that real, real estate? estate? Yeah, portfolio real estate. And so what is that? What, what do you hope to achieve via the exposure to that portfolio real estate and um, private equity is simply a, a, another asset class that does well in 
you know, positive growth, benign inflation, it's and equity. liquidity. Yeah, <laughs> it's equity. So it's it's not going to give you that shock absorption on the way down. So if you only have five to ten percent, again, this is one of those really interesting pieces of of portfolio construction. You need it to be non correlated, and you need it to deliver outsized returns during that period. So things like long, short, or market neutral, they're they're going to do something, but they're not going to give you the outsized return that you need to contribute to the portfolio to offset the other poor performing asset classes in said portfolio. And so, right, real estate, as you think about the allocation uh, mechanisms within your portfolio, have to be thought through on a case-by-case basis for the limits and restrictions that different um, asset owners have. And and that's, that's that's actually where I think you know, that it really becomes important to have, um, you know, someone with some expertise to help walk you through that because it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable too. And as I think you, you advocate, Rod, it's like, you know, you need 30% uh, of, of least, an allocation. Right? Like, uh, you, yeah. know, you know us, we think about it from a risk parity perspective. And so there's more complexity there, right? If it were up to me, you'd have a massive bond position, a small equity position and, 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 you know, the right level of volatility in my multi-asset so that I could have balance between the three pillars, right? Imagine three pistons in a motor all being able to contribute the, sound, the same amount of power, right? So there's, there's ways that you need to, that if, you, if you're willing to have tracking error, you can think about it. But generally, like from a practical perspective, most people are so married to their 60-40 that what I'm begging them to consider is just pro-rata that down and add that third piston in your motor. You absolutely need it and are missing it and nothing else will do, right? In terms of, of the, uh, the, the characteristics and qualities that these tend to have in the biggest blind spots in 60 and 40. Yeah, I mean, they could in theory just take their 60, 40 portfolio, replace it with an allocation to NTSX for two thirds of it. So now you're getting a full exposure to 60, 40 and then take the rest of the capital and allocate it to trend funds too. Like there's a few sure. ways to scheme There's a few happen. ways to do it. Like yeah. the, the, the concept of return stacking can be wide varying. Yeah. Um, we just, you know, you want and to make that's why it takes, be, I think, a yeah. thoughtful practitioner. Like you, you need, this is something yeah. that, you know, on the surface may seem simple, but it's actually, it, it requires some significant thought. And you, and you see that in the return stacking index that, that has been created. Um, you know, there are, there's a list of publicly traded funds there and each of them offer different parts of this puzzle. And yeah. so when you x-ray through them, that's how you get to this exposure at, that Rodrigo highlighted earlier, having the 60-40 and uh, 30% to global macro, et cetera, and getting this return stacked situation it, it it had you had to x-ray these types of funds and so there's there's extra work there as i as i mentioned earlier this requires a deeper level of thought it requires um you know some some actual um uh understanding and learning because you need to be able to be comfortable with it when it's uncomfortable right if you just do it you know okay that sounds good i'll do it well when it gets hard you may abandon it and when do you abandon it? You don't abandon it when it's working. You abandon it when it's not working. And thereby you accept the loss with, and the call it the risk with no commensurate return. So making sure you're comfortable with these types of um, philosophies so that you can stick to it is incredibly important. 
Yeah, please, please, please do not take this as investment advice. I mean, this requires lots of discussions with your advisor or, you know, whoever is that you trust the most. Like you need to you need to think thoroughly about all of this and implementation before you do anything. So, um, you know, we're happy to, to help. And, you know, you can always reach out to us. Corey is in the chat as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the stack return index since we've launched it has done exactly what's expected of it, right? Some a nice little stack and in a low return environment, it might be just what we need. Um, we need to think about it differently yeah. and we have better solutions than ever. That's all. Is, is there anything all else right. we need to cover, boys? I think that was pretty mm-hmm. thorough. Yeah, I, th- I was, I think that we, was great. We made our I case. I certainly enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I learned a few things. I enjoyed it. It was a great Friday afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. I have lots right. more to say, but I will uh, I will leave it for another time. I got to go do my, my first Gaelic football match, gents. Nice. Very exciting. Very exciting. Good luck. Do not Anybody break a leg. Who hasn't, who hasn't seen it needs to Google that to see how silly it may look. Yeah. To others that are not Irish. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Irish folks on here are, are like, yeah, giving you the fist pump. Exactly. Uh, anyway, I think we've covered, you know, all the places where there's uh, reports and links as we've talked about them. We'll probably show the, throw those in the show notes. And as always, please like and share this with uh, your colleagues. Even if you can think of one person that, that can benefit from this, that helps us continue to provide this great content. Helps us provide uh, attract other guests that we can bring on um, to counter our points or to give us deeper understanding on the situation we're in, where we're headed, and um, yeah, yeah. You Reach can find out. You know where hundreds to get us. of pages on these themes at investresolve.com. Uh, just go back go. through our research list, featured research, and yeah. yeah, you'll you'll find all the uh, all the info you can stomach on these these topics. So. All right, gents. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Music. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.